Well, good morning, church. This isn't a speech impediment. I'm Australian. Um, uh, I was uh, joking with new friends, meeting uh, more of your pastors this morning, that uh, uh, around these parts you probably haven't heard much from Pastor McKenna's, and maybe Father McKenna's, but not Pastor McKenna's. And um, I want to start, if, if I may, Alan, and as Alan was saying, the connection for us has been instant and has been incredibly healing. I'm a first-generation Australian. Uh, my dad was born in Coleraine. The family live in the Ardoyne, for those who know Belfast. Um, and uh, my tour in 2015 included uh, going to where my dad was a brother um, in a monastery in Dublin, so pretty Catholic family. Uh, obviously not still a brother because um, I'm here, uh, so the, there's, it's not that kind of controversial story. Um, uh, we, we went to a pub and uh, as we're having lunch, was told that this is where my dad's granddad was blown up, um, uh, toured the neighbourhood and it's like, this is where y your cousin was shot. And um, uh, being here with you lot is incredibly healing for me. So I just want to testify what God is doing in my life as I'm with you right now. This is, um, this is rewriting my story. And uh, the, the healing... Um, as my, my dad came back to faith outside of um, uh, the same circles that he initially came to faith and uh, some of the difficulty in the family because of that, this is healing for me being here. So your warmth in welcoming me and uh, the, the kind of intimacy that I've experienced um, has been incredibly beautiful. And I, I love your pastors. I've just met a few more. But in terms of Alan and his heart of prayer, and the rewriting of these neighbourhoods. And they, Johnny, the work you're doing, I hope this word this morning for you, you hear in ways that encourage and kind of haunt you with the hope for, for kids that others merely write off, that you are seeing God rewrite their stories. My hope is that in general that people have a word, but I hope in particular you hear something for you in the faithfulness of literally running these streets, hoping for what others can't believe in. And... Um, I mean, in, in my circles, we're big on signs and wonders, right? Uh, that might be true for you as well. I, I want you to know that this is signs and wonders of my story being rewritten. And some of that um, has been seeing my darkness start to dazzle with the light of God. That's a subtle plug for one of your pastor's books. Um, and Johnny, we've actually got some photos of uh, how my darkness over the last couple of years has been rewritten. So um, some of you might recognise this, this very sweet, very tall American um, people meet John o. Martin, Jonathan Martin. Um, so John is one of my best mates in the world, and he travelled to um, Australia in January yet again. Um, he, he can't get enough of the place, and he actually um, officiated at my wedding. And so I've just um, been married, which has been incredibly healing for me. So this is my w wife, Kathleen McKenna, uh, who's actually Dutch. Um, so that's a great Dutch name, I think. Um, and and uh, here's little Winston, and we've got another photo um, here, and this is Winston and Hugo. And I think this photo kind of summarises um, their personalities perfectly, actually. Um, I've met a new mate named Hugo down here in the front, so there's my little Hugo. And for both of us, the, the healing in our life and the way God has redeemed, um, obviously this is like a wedding photo. Australians don't usually hang out in suits and wedding dresses in the Aussie bush. Um, but I wanted to give you a little insight um, before we open up the text and hear what God's doing here, what God's doing in me. You catch me in a season of my life 
where God, in God's graciousness, just keeps healing things that I thought could never come back together and in, in ways that are so much be- more beautiful than I ever expected. Hoping for just a, a little bit more of wine at the party and the best wine has been saved till last. And I, I hope you find me in this word that we share this morning catches you in such a way. Pastor Alan was sharing with me that you're in this series of making Christ's commandment, making the Great Commission practical. I hope that hits you in such ways that inspire you again. You fall in love with Jesus again. The goodness of his name, the power of his name brings you back to the kind of worship where you tear up. Uh, I have a sense in coming here this morning, Johnny and I, and if those haven't visited Johnny down in Ross Trevor and seen the incredible work that they're doing, the reconciling work that they're doing, I was so excited to come to this part of the world and actually be a part of that. We talk about this in Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city of the world, so to come and see it firsthand is incredible. It's in your backyard. If you haven't been down there, go and check it out. It's incredibly beautiful. Some of the stories of what's happening there. And we were talking on the way here about this this kind of work that's going on in me, this kind of, there's there's a sense of grace, a sense of energy and being given back what, when we initially came to Christ and that kind of excitement, that there's actually more there. And things that we might think of as uh, things that actually bog down or I should do, to leave behind the oughts and the shoulds and let God do through us what we can't yet imagine. Did you sense that as Johnny was sharing the work that he's doing in these streets? To pray for that 13-year-old with the machete and the other kids with the drug overdose issues and that kind of stuff. The work that your community is doing in having the kind of sweetness to open up texts that we'll open up this morning and expect God to speak to us in such ways that rewrites our lives so we can be part of the rewriting of our neighbourhoods. That's why I'm excited to be with you this morning. So before I pray, maybe I can open up a little bit our text. Yeah, you heard correctly, text. I won't preach both of them, but I want to read two. Now, um, because I'm old school, like an old fool, how do, how do people feel about standing for reading of the gospel? Is that provocative? Is that controversial? I mean, I'm wearing a head covering. For some people, that's already like, ooh. Um, if he is a sister and he's going to prophesy, that might be controversial. We're not dealing with those texts this morning. Um, People feel okay to stand? I want to give back to you the Great Commission. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. I'm going to start at 16. Then the eleven of the disciples went to Galilee to the mount where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't miss verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Staying in Matthew's gospel, jumping back, to that hill that Jesus took them back to for the Great Commission. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not violently resist those doing evil. 
If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If somebody wants to sue you and take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. And you may be sons and daughters of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, whoop-de-doo, that's the Australian translation. What good is that? What reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only those who are your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, as we open your holy written word, we invite in and beg of you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would send your living word. Jesus, come and move amongst us. Jesus, take that which would get in the way of what you want to do in this space and remove it from us. Bring your removal truck and anything found in our hearts that is not worthy to receive you as king. Would you take it from us that you would find in us as a people and individuals the kind of space for you to be set aside as Lord. Holy Spirit, do thy will. Do thy will, Holy Spirit. We ask that your kingdom would come. Your will would be done in us as your people, as it is in your very presence. So may the words on my lips and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you truly, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all those who love God and want to open to love God more said, Amen. Amen. (coughs) Verse 20. Verse 20 is where we often leave off. I find fascinating, and I don't know if you caught it when I said it, that Jesus takes them back to Galilee, where in Matthew 5, 23, we find where Jesus is when he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. So where Jesus has taken us back to in terms of the Great Commission, we can't understand the Great Commission if we have an omission of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what preachers do. See what we did there? Wordplay? That's hopefully so you can remember it. But often we don't connect the Great Commission and what we're called to, to the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus deliberately takes us, disciples, back to what he, he has taught. And sometimes as we teach the Great Commission, we miss things which are essential. Things like not to make converts, not to make believers, not to make creche volunteers, not to make small group leaders... Not to make church volunteers, but to make, not a rhetorical question, but to make disciples. The word literally in Greek means students or pupils. Not in the sense that we think about it in terms of Greek philosophy where you're learning a new set of ideas, but in the Jewish sense of you're being invited into a new way of walking, a new way of life, a new way of understanding yourself and seeing the world. What Pastor Alan shared with us in terms of the healing of our ears and the loosening of our lips, that we might hear differently, talk 
differently and be in the world differently, to be disciples. And often we skip over baptism, play it down. The very place we're immersed in a new story, where our stories are rewritten, where we die to our old self and the other ways that we've been named, either as being better than others because of A, B, C and D. I grew up in this neighbourhood, I wear these brands, I drive this car, I went to this school. All the other ways we're named that I don't have this. This happened in my home. I spent time in this institution. These people treated me like this. The things that name us as less than children of God, less than how our baptism names us, we skip over that and we miss that identity is a central part of what we're called to do in the Great Commission. Johnny's work in speaking to these young people and embodying something that is different shows them that they can be different. He is a living sign and wonder on our streets of a world that is coming because of what God has done in Jesus. That is central to discipleship. It's not come and believe in Jesus and then you might consider his teachings and his example. You can't separate them. Baptizing in the identity of the triune God, a God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this eternal emptying love that gives of itself canonically. That's who we really are found there. That's what we're destined for. But verse 20 is what we often leave off. Teaching them to what? Obey. Now, obedience, uh, I know here in Northern Ireland, it's got the kind of same resonance as it does in Australia. We might want to preach about living your best life, living into your destiny. But words like obedience aren't that sexy. And partly because our picture of God doesn't look anything like Jesus. So we hear obedience in such ways that it's not heard as freedom. It's not heard as destiny. It's not heard as this is what best life is. Instead, it's heard in such ways that sounds like there's a dictator who's asking of us something which is cruel. But instead, if we're to hear that as taking part in we are baptized, immersed into a God who is triune love. And what it is to be obedient to that flow of love. What is it to be obedient to love? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And not only do we forget obedience, but we forget presence. There is no obedience without God's presence. And those of us in the room who are Pentecostals, who are charismatics, and you know because I'm clicking, that's, that's the sign, that's a cultural sign. There is no presence without obedience. If you show up at a revival and you have carpet time and the, the whole experience and all the rest and it doesn't express itself in what we've heard Johnny is doing, going to the, the places that other places write off that God wants to rewrite, we need to ask, did we encounter God's presence or are we addicted to spiritual one-night stands? Do we instead want the goosebumps instead of the Holy Ghost? Because what the Holy Ghost does is teaches us an obedience to love, which is real freedom. So imagine, imagine if Matthew's gospel, giving us the Great Commission, imagine if Matthew's gospel had in mind a clear set of what it is to actually be obedient to Jesus. Wouldn't it be helpful if, I don't know, in maybe three chapters, Matthew maybe summarized 15 clear commandments where the imperatives in the Greek are clear of what the early church was to be if they were obedient to the triune God who is love. Wouldn't that be helpful? 
Like if it was arranged in such ways that many scholars think it was memorized by communities that we find in early Syrian church, where before baptism, before they immerse themselves in this new identity, in this new community of what it is to live God's triune love, imagine if they had a clear sense that this means I have to become a yes means yes kind of person. I need to become a remove logs from my own eye kind of person. I need to become a not just love of neighbor, but love of enemy kind of person. I need to become a not objectify my sisters, but actually humanize others and have a sexuality which is safe instead of predatory kind of person. That I'm actually being taught what it is that grace isn't getting off or out of what God hopes for our world and has made a reality in Jesus. But grace is the power, not just the pardon, to get in on it. As John Wimber, and I know there's some vineyard people in the room, would say, how we get in is how we get on. It's all grace. It's all grace. And if we have cultures that seek signs and wonders that have no interest in us becoming signs and wonders, we have missed something really important. You are called and empowered to become signs and wonders. And given the bad witness protection program that I want to lean into in this next story, I won't name what country this happened and what denomination, but I was brought in by one of the fastest growing denominations uh, in a certain country to lead pastors from around that nation in what it is to actually make discipleship practical. And with a whiteboard, we sat around a table and we asked these pastors, what are the commandments of Christ? that we actually are asked to obey. And with this room of over 20 pastors of big churches, we struggled to get past six. Six things that Jesus actually asked of us. And when we talk about like a crisis in discipleship, it's often we don't know what it is to actually be a follower. We have energy, we have intention, we have a sincerity, but when it comes to the practicalities, we don't know what grace looks like in practice. So with the amount of time that we have left, I, I want to take one of those teachings, what is often thought of as one of the hardest teachings, and actually show what grace looks like for the early church, how we see examples of that throughout history, and what it can look like for us together. Is that an okay way to spend our time? Are we connecting that there is no great commission without the commandments of the Sermon on the Mount? That we need to go back to that hill and see them through the resurrected one who was crucified, who asks us and then sends the Spirit to empower us to live by grace what we're saved for, not merely focus on what we're saved from. Because the work that Johnny is doing, these kids not only need to be saved from the drug addiction, from the gang violence, from this kind, of, they need to be saved for discipleship. And sometimes we do a great job at bringing people out of these horrific things and never bring people into kingdom things. Jesus has more for us than safe, respectable, middle-class lives. There is the kingdom of God to seek first and his healing justice. And if we don't recapture the adventure of discipleship, we will see young people set free from their Egypts and never step into their promised lands. We need to bring these things together. Yes, we need to see healing from these things, but we need to see healing to be these things as a people. Are we doing all right? Great.
Let's jump in to Matthew 5, verse 38. In fact, I need a volunteer. Is somebody willing, somebody with a high shame threshold willing to help me out? I'll give you 30 seconds to decide as, as I reach for a prop. Not all at once. Anybody willing to help me out? I see that hand. Brother, come and join us. Brother, your name is? Max. Hey, Matt. Thanks for helping me out. Nice jersey. We won't bring up the Wallabies. It's not so bad now. Yeah, yeah. Do you know who Dave Pocock is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I introduced Dave to his now wife and I, I did their wedding. They're, they're wonderful people. Anybody want to talk rugby afterwards? We can do that. <laughs> Matt, I need your left hand. This is Matt's left hand. Anybody know what this is? This is um, what potatoes are for the Irish. This is for Australians. <laughs> um, they say the difference between dominant Australia and yogurt is that after 200 years, yogurt has a culture. Um, this is <laughs> that's a bit harsh on where I'm from. Uh, this is Vegemite, which um, tastes awful. Uh, but luckily, Matt doesn't need to eat it. Matt, I need your left hand. And Matt, welcome to a visual aid. Matt, if you'd show anybody, everybody your left hand. So a text without a context is a sure sign you're being conned. For the early Christians, the text that we're about to look at was something that was liberating. Grace-infused practice and obedience meant that this was a teaching that gave people back their dignity in ways that witnessed to the kingdom through the cross in the power of the resurrection in such ways that people encountered the Holy Spirit and became people who glorified the Father. That's good Trinitarian theology. But a text without a context is a sure sign you're being conned. Again, a text without a context is a sure sign that you're being conned. Verse 38 reads, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not violently resist somebody doing evil. If somebody slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, Matt, have you been to Asia? Have you spent time in Thailand or India? Why wouldn't you eat with your left hand in those places? Yeah, no, Matt put it about as politely as an Australian would as well, because it's a hand you clean your bum. For those who are um, more middle class, it's the hand you do your ablutions. But you know, that's, that's right. But now we've got Vegemite to actually help us out. But this is incredibly important. A text without a context is a sure sign you're being what? Conned. And there is so many ways in which these passages have been interpreted in ways that don't look like Jesus. If you're ever given a Bible text and you're like, how does this fit? with Jesus, the way to respond is look at Jesus' life. Don't take it on face value. So you can see clearly that Matt's left hand is used for ablutions. It is the same in Jesus' culture. In, in fact, in the um, uh, Qumran community, which uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually um, texts of the Qumran community, if Matt and I were to gesture with each other with our left hand, so we're even a wave with each other, we can be kicked out of community for eight to ten days. That's how offensive it was. Now, the text says something really interesting that most people skip straight over. But if we're going to take the Great Commission seriously, to make disciples, to be obedient, to live into God's presence, is we have to understand the context so that we can be faithful witnesses of the kingdom in ways that bring life instead of some of the death-dealing legalism that people do with texts like this when they don't read it through our Lord and Saviour. So 
if Matt couldn't use this hand to slap me, Matt, I'm going to ask you to put that hand behind your back. Now, I'm a fragile Australian. But if you have to use that hand to hit me, you'd hit me on what cheek? On, the, like, on your left cheek. On my what cheek? Left cheek. Isn't that interesting? A text without a context is a sure sign you're being... If we are to be obedient to what God is asking of us in this passage, we must understand what is happening. So, Matt, Jesus says clearly, if somebody slaps you on your what cheek? No, it's interesting. Matthew 5, 38. If somebody slaps you on your right cheek. So, Matt, if you have to use that hand and you have to hit this cheek, what are you going to do? It's going to be awkward. It's probably just me and you. That's right. (laughs) So, this is really clear. It, It is actually, this is my right hand. This is Matt's what? Right cheek. Now, if I'm to hit, it's either going to be incredibly awkward or it's something different that happens in neighborhoods like mine. Bam. See, this isn't about a fist fight between two equals. This is a way in that society where people understood themselves on a social ladder and it was completely acceptable for somebody on a higher rank of a social ladder to backhand someone. See, this isn't about a fair fist fight. This is about a systematic way in which people say, you're less than me. I don't know what they are in your culture. But in the subtleties of Australian culture, sometimes it's not seeing somebody who is clearly there. They're not responding to certain people because of the way they dress or they smell or whatever else. This is a systematic way of saying, so if Matt was to slap me on my right cheek, he's going, get back in your place. If he was to slap me on my right cheek, he's saying, you remember where you fit in the pyramid. If he's to slap me on my right cheek, he's saying, I'm better than you. You remember how the world works. This is the way that the world is. I am above you. You are less than me. And in that patriarchal society, maybe it's because he's a man and I'm a woman. And what a woman. Maybe it's because he's a Roman and I'm a Palestinian Jew working the land. Maybe it's because he's a landowner and I'm a worker with debt in the field. Maybe it's because he's an adult in a society that didn't value children. But there is a certain social pyramid that says, you're less than me. This is the way things are. You have less dignity than me. Get back in your place. What I want you to pay attention to is our Lord does not suggest or give a principle, but a practice that is a command. That if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, I'm commanded by Jesus to do what? If I turn the other cheek, Matt has to hit me, not with that hand, with this hand, as a what? That's everything. If you didn't catch it, more of an equal. See, if Matt and I were fighting as equals in that society, I'd make a fist and I'd land a punch on what cheek? <laughs> Matt's done this before. Like, <laughs> now, if he was to hit me, he would land. Jesus is saying that if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, bam, you turn and you make them address you as an equal. Now, here's the thing. With all you watching on, if I'm considered less in that society and I turn the other cheek and Matt hits me, he says to all of you, I'm what? His what? Equal. Now, if he doesn't hit me, in terms of the power dynamics of coercion, what have I just actually exposed and undone? Who has the power if I turn the other cheek? 
This has actually got everything to do with the cross and resurrection. See, the cross is not the absence of power. The cross is God's power that is stronger than the powers of this world. We see it as weakness. We want the Almighty to be something as all-vulnerable. But the all-vulnerability of God is revealed to be true power. And what Jesus is showing us in his commandments is that here is a child of God, even though he might not be acting as a child of God. Here is a child of God, even though I might have not stepped into that reality as a child of God. And what we're to do is the creative thing that says, I'm a child of God. I will not participate in your writing of my story as a less than a child of God. And I will not write a story for you where you're less than a child of God. Can you see the sign and wonder that this one commandment starts to open up? where the cross isn't an act of passivity, but this is an act of not merely, not merely transformation, but actually confrontation. Ooh. That discipleship actually invites us into the place to confront all the principalities and powers that name us something less than a child of God. Round of applause for Matt. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Matt, good luck with the Vegemite. There are two popular ways in which the Sermon on the Mount throughout Western Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, has been interpreted. One side is the camp of the must-dos. The other side is the camp of the can't-dos. I don't know your story. Uh, you might be in church for the first time, but you've grown up in a culture which knows something of either the can't-dos or the must-dos. And there are different versions of this as well. There are legalistic versions of, from conservative circles of the must-do. And it might be about the length of dresses. It might be about the kind of way you do your hair. It might be about how communion is carried out or when baptism... But there is a list of must-dos. And if you don't do this, you don't deserve God's love. And if you don't understand the irony of deserve and God's love, we need to spend a little bit of time in a Bible study about grace. Has anybody known this kind of circle? Maybe you know the more liberal version of the must-do. So it's not on those kind of social indicators of are you saved enough, but it's things to do with, you know, um, are you woke enough? Do you understand the issues enough? Oh, nice coffee. Fair trade? Oh, it's not fair trade. Really? Where are your shoes made? Oh, really? Bangladesh. Slave children. Now, it's, you, you know these people, and it's not that they're not right. They are right. But they're right in such a way that it's not about God's righteousness, God's healing justice, the coming of the kingdom. It's about their righteousness, about setting me up against others. And some people have related to the Sermon on the Mount as a set of either conservative or liberal must-dos. So this is what hardcore Christians do. This is more woke than thou Christians do. This is what real Christians do. This is what the, the saved and sanctified do. Have anybody encountered this kind of must-do Christianity? No, just Australia. That's fine. There's another option. No, I saw some of you nodding. In the other camp, there's the can't do. And sometimes you find people with texts like this who have come out of the must-do camp. And it sounds death-dealing. Let me take it out of the abstract. Last year in Australia, 67 women died at the hands of people who shared the same roof who said that they loved them. In Northern Ireland, it was 11 women. You are more likely to die at the hands of someone you know than someone you don't know. There were 12 murders of women last year in this nation, 
11 of them happened at the hands of people that they were committed to. People who said, I love you. This must-do camp has often been interpreted in such a way that looks nothing like Jesus. So let me take it out of the theoretical. Let's say you're in a situation where the person you love, the person that you've committed your life to, maybe they've got a new job and it's hard or maybe they've lost their job and it's been very difficult. And maybe instead of spending time with some of the wonderful leaders here and actually opening up their hearts and staying in that hard place where it's soft, instead there is a hardness and the bottle has become a replacement for seeking God's blessing. And when they drink, they're no longer the person that you fell in love with. They're becoming something which is a parody of all of God's promises for your life. And instead of your home being a sanctuary, a place of safety, it's actually become a place of terror. And this person that you so love now becomes somebody that you fear. And seeking some hope, maybe the first time in a long time you show up in a church and you hear this text read. And you hear it read in the must-do kind of way. If you're a sister, which is going to be easier for some of you to imagine than others, and you step into a church and you hear this text interpreted in such a way where it's a shallow, legalistic rigid must do and you've stepped into a reality where you're hearing the words if somebody slaps you on the right cheek turn to them the other also and in particular in verse 38 if it's been interpreted ignoring the Greek but since the King James's men have translated the King James into English that verse has not been translated do not violently resist which is a more faithful translation of in the, the Septuagint is a fancy way of saying the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This same word is used 77 times. 44 of those times relates to violent conflict, as in a battle. It is more faithful to actually say, do not violently resist. But you tell me, what's the difference between do not violently resist and how many of our Bibles read, despite the Greek, where it says do not resist? What's the difference between do not resist and do not violently resist? It means resist, yeah. But it's the kind of resistance that actually humanizes us, that doesn't get us stuck in the same dynamic. Think of Jesus' own life. When Jesus is struck, he faces down the most powerful person representing the biggest empire in the world and says, why do you strike me? There's nothing doormat about that. There's nothing him being walked over. This is confrontation in the same way that the cross is confrontation of all sin. And yet we won't interpret our Lord's teachings. They're his, through his example. And so we end up with death-dealing kind of must-dos. Now, if you're a sister and you hear this must-do kind of interpretation as you rock into a place on Sunday looking for hope, not what do you think, but how do you feel? If your reality is you're being beaten in the same place that is supposed to be your sanctuary and you hear God's word, manipulated, distorted and reinterpreted in ways that don't look like Jesus and sounds like you need to be a holy doormat and that's what righteousness is. My question is, how do you feel? Anyone? Hopeless. If the hope of the world sounds hopeless, we're telling 
the story wrong. How do you feel, others? Disempowered. A faith which is all about the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. How can we hear the gospel in such ways that disempower us instead of empower us to the holiness of living the kingdom? Emotions. How do you feel? Alone. The very place where you're seeking community, you're seeking safety, you're seeking hope, you're seeking empowerment. You need good news and you end up feeling more alone in the very places that claim to be preaching the gospel. Can we see if we miss Jesus' teachings or distort Jesus' teachings, we end up death-dealing instead of life-giving? So in response to this must-do, there are other circles which say you can't do. I actually had a pastor say to me, well, the Sermon on the Mount, all of that is pre-cross. So almost like Jesus didn't know the gospel because the gospel is a mechanism to get us saved. So thankfully we've got a Messiah who fulfills a mechanism. If your gospel is about a mechanism for salvation instead of Jesus the Messiah, you need some better news. Over here sometimes people are like, we can ignore what Jesus asks of us because the only way you can hear it is must do. So the can't do camp will often talk of grace as pardon and miss empowerment. Grace is always both. Forgiveness of sins means that you can walk in a new way. The story that Pastor Alan told about ears being healed and tongues being loosed. That's not the end of the story. What's implied in that is he spends a life hearing. He spends a life testifying. If we think grace lets us off the hook and start, instead of actually empowering us into following Jesus, we have yet to discover what grace is. See, over here, this interpretation, the must-do, makes us legalists. I hear people in the can't-do, and it sounds like God is a legalist. God needs you to do one of certain magical formulas, depending on which denomination you get saved in, so that you can receive what God has for you. Now, for some of us, it's speaking in tongues. For some of us, it's immersion in water. For some of us, it's responding to an altar call. I don't know, but you've been in this circle where grace is only yours if you do A, B, C, and D. And I listen to this stuff. Have some of you heard this kind of stuff? And you can feel that, like, no, what I want is Jesus. And God will save us here, and God will save us here despite that kind of stuff, because thankfully the Holy Spirit's at work. But what is it for us to actually be faithful to an articulation of the gospel that glorifies Jesus, where our interpretation of what discipleship is looks like the one who is teaching it and feels like life, feels like the kind of thing that makes us wonder and weep, feels like this is life in its fullness, and it is good news for me and my family and my neighbourhoods. The man in that situation we're talking about, he needs saving. The woman in that situation we're talking about, she needs saving. We know a saviour. His name is Jesus and there is power in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus' name is practical. But we must move past the black and white must-dos or the grey can't-dos. I listen to God in this circle 
And it's like, Jesus is wonderful, but the Father needs to take it out on someone. So he took it out on Jesus so he doesn't have to take it out on you. Who wants to come forward and accept Jesus? And I'm like, I like Jesus, but that sounds scary. I think the God you're talking about needs to accept Jesus into his heart. Orthodox Christianity insists that in him, Jesus, God's fullness was pleased to dwell. If you take nothing from today, take that the mystery that is God is revealed in Jesus. There is nothing in God that isn't Christ-like. I'll say it again. There is nothing in God that isn't Christ-like. So if your understanding of salvation needs one part of God to be a monster so God can look majestic, no, no, no. Your theology needs more Jesus. So as we close, like, Jared, are these our options? We either got, like, this strange relationship where I go, can't do. Oh, actually, I'll try and follow Jesus a little bit. Must do. This feels like legalism going over here. Can't do. I hear some grace. I feel better about myself. Go and try this again. Can't do again. And have you met people who live in this kind of jumping back and forward between guilt and shame? There is no condemnation in Christ. What Jesus invites us into, I need one more volunteer as we finish. Will somebody help me out? I need a fella who's bigger than me that could beat me up. It's not that hard. I'm five foot seven. Is there a fella that's a little taller? Thanks, bro. Your name is? Another Johnny. Round of applause for Johnny. Thanks, mate. Pastor Alan, I'm actually going to ask you to hold the mic, if that's okay. Johnny, I'm going to get you to put your hands up like this. Now, we're going to step over here just a little bit. The cross, in response to the sin of the world. Some people hear this teaching and hear that when we're faced with a greater force, our response, and what I'm going to ask you to do, Johnny, is to push until I say stop. But when I say stop, you stop. So just keep pushing me back until I say stop. Go. So some people see discipleship as this. Turning on the cheap knee jerk, and this is what we do. Stop. When you've had enough of being humiliated and demoralized your whole life, finally you fight back. But most people fight back like this. And here's the thing what if they're bigger than you? <laughs> and here's the other thing when I fight like that, I end up looking like who? What Johnny is doing in our neighborhood, the work that he's doing, he's facing young people with the domestic violence and the alcoholism and the drug addiction, and there's so much pain <coughs> in that reality, and in response to that, they often become just like it. In my neighborhood, kids who face bullying from gang realities, you know what they'll do? Join a different gang. And the gospel is, frees us from these dynamics, from being either victimizer or being victim. Bono put it, we become the monster so the monster would not overtake us. Thanks, Johnny. Here's the fascinating thing. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we're told our job is to stand. There was a moment where we respond not by being pushed around, and even if it does come to the fact that they push you in such ways that you fall over, martyrdom is the hope of resurrection. 
that you can be obedient to live God's love and trust that love will have the last word because Jesus has risen from the grave. The gospel sets us free from becoming what we hate and sets us free from giving up our dignity so that they're not transformed and nor are we. We need to take back these teachings of Jesus in such a way that they feel like grace. They feel like deliverance. They feel like liberation. Our neighborhoods can see that there is a way for me rather than just being pushed around or pushing back, that we can see a rewriting of our stories, of our cities, of our world. That's what we're called to. The Great Commission is for all of us. These teachings are for all of us. And it frees and it liberates. And it feels like good news. Now, I'm aware of the time, but I'm wondering if I can tell one story. Do I have time for one story? This is an important story for me, where this stuff, and some of you might know a little of my story in that I was given a National Peace Award at home and I train people in this stuff and this is a passion for me. And and the irony of where my family has come from, and this is what I mean by like the healing that is happening for me being here right now, is that we have on both sides of a conflict that for some has passed and others because of current situations feels kind of present again. People who claim the name of Jesus But when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, they're either a must-do that leads to legalism or a can't-do that aren't that practical. And we need to step into not can't-do or must-do, but God wants to do through you, through you, his power in you. What's asked of you is a creative obedience of asserting the kind of dignity that gives them an opportunity to find their dignity. This for me became very real. I was 18 years old and I was mugged for the first time in my life. I was in a a certain overpass in a certain side of my city that if you knew my city, you'd be like, ooh. And this guy who's about a foot taller than me, which is not that hard, is walking the opposite direction. And I've been reading a, a book by Martin Luther King called Why We Can't Wait. And I'm in my first year studying fine arts at Curtin University and I've got my backpack and I've got my easel and I've got my philosophy books and my art history books. And I'm reading this book and my head's down and I barely notice this guy who's about a foot taller than me, black Adidas tracksuit, arms rolled up, dishevelled, needs a shower, needs a shave. And I don't notice him until he's leaning over me and he's like, give us your money. And like most of us in that moment, my initial response is just shock. That stuff that we learn in Australia in year 10 biology, that we respond in either fight or flight. And so I'm like, What's going on? And so my options, not that you think about this, not that you ask for waiting music and this plays itself out, but it's that, like, am I bolting? Or am I going to take him on? Look, if I try and take him on, he's a foot tall, so much like Matt, maybe I get a cheap shot in and he goes down, but more likely, I try that, I hit his kneecap instead, he turns around Terminator style and I end up a pile of red goo that was once Jared that people step in and is like, what's that, Jared? Tried to stand up the big guy, didn't go down well. So my other option is to run, only I'm on this overpass with cars going underneath on the freeway. And so, like, I couldn't even jump off the bridge if I wanted to, it's caged. So if I run with my backpack, it's like, like, there's no getaway. And the next thing that came into my head is these teachings. These teachings which are not about not resisting, but not resisting in ways that we overcome evil by becoming evil. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, 
overcome evil with good. And so it's not like I asked for a moment to recite the Sermon on the Mount, but what fell in my heart is, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not violently resist someone doing evil. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go with them the second. If somebody asks you out of garment, give them your undergarment as well. Give to the one who asks of you. And hearing the word of God in that moment, it freed me. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Some of you have got those testimonies that you're in a certain situation and scripture comes to mind and suddenly you are present to the Holy Spirit's present in what seems like the darkest situation. So I actually pulled out my wallet and the first miracle is I had $10 in it. I'm an art student. It's the end of the day. I have 10 bucks in my wallet. That's a miracle. And so I went in to give him the money, but I also said, I'm Jared. And it was like that as well. It was like, James. I thought he had my name wrong. I'm like, no, no, Jared. He's like, I'm James. I'm sorry to be doing this to you. Hey, I'm in a really bad way. I was on now track zone. I was getting off the stuff. I got on the next now track zone program so I could get off heroin. But I'm back on the stuff and I'm just in a really bad way. I'm sorry to be doing this to you. My mum kicked me out of home. I'm living on streets and I just need another. His life story at a speed that rivals the cars underneath us on the freeway. And I'm standing there with the guy and we were standing as close as we were when we shook hands. And all I can think is, this guy stinks. Like he just smells like stale urine. And I spent over a decade of my life opening my home in a community that I started for people who would otherwise be homeless or coming out of jail. Or, and that's how I started working with refugees. And some of you know some of those stories and the story of First Home Project. And, but at that stage, this was my first kind of encounter. I've shaken his hand. He's telling me his life story. But I've seen my parents model to me what it is to respond to Christ in those that most people don't think Christ is present. The subtle ways where they brought people home, gave them a meal, gave them a shower, offered them a spare bed that had a lock on the other side of the house so us kids were never at risk and they weren't naive about anything. But those kind of holy examples which have shaped my life that I never thought of as a kid. And so as he's telling his life story at a million miles an hour, I said to him, James, why don't you come back to my place? We'll get you a feed, work out a place for you to stay, you can have a shower, Maybe we can find some clothes that fit you. <laughs> Not likely, he's huge. And a bit like when I stuck my hand out, it was one of those moments where it wasn't this, but nor was it this. Something else was happening. Something that made space for the Holy Spirit. Something that made room for God. Obedience is making room for God. Obedience is creating a space where miracles can happen. Obedience is saying, not by might, not by power, Spirit of God now, Spirit of God. And we're standing on the bridge and this girl runs through the middle of us. She obviously knows James. She's got a handbag under her arm, again in a black Adidas tracksuit. Don't know what it is about black Adidas tracksuits, but maybe it was their gang's uniform, I don't know. She runs through the middle of us. She's like, I've got a bag, we've got to go, we've got to go. And he's like, look, I've got to go, hey, I took my backpack off and I reached in and you know the little Gideon red bubbles? I always carried one on me. I said, James, before you go, it's got my name and number in it. If you change your mind about a place to stay, it's a Bible. And first time in that situation, since he initially was standing over me, he's like, a Bible? What do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. And it's not the most theologically brilliant response, but I said, James, we're all going through hell. That's why Jesus came. And what happened in that moment was the first time in a situation where I was surprised 
He just starts crying. And I'm not talking like sad movie, one tear. Like his head is looking at the ground and he is just sobbing. There's something about telling him this is why Jesus came in the context of making room for the obedience that allows for miracles, that he was just undone in that moment. As he shook my hand and the pain that I saw on his arm that was offered to me as an icon of how awful his life had been, in that moment, all he could do was just weep. And I didn't know what to do. I was actually a bit scared and a bit freaked out about it. And he's crying and he wipes what looked like needed to be delivered from on his on his sleeve and he turns away and he starts running and then he turns back to me and he's running towards me and being the mighty man of faith that I am I started walking backwards because I didn't know what he was going to do and he walks up to me and he grabs the bible and he starts running again he turns around and he waves at me and he keeps running I'm just standing there what was that I pick up my bag and I was already walking in that direction and I get to the end of the overpass and there's a beaten up uh, Holden Commodore. I don't know if anybody knows an AK Holden Commodore. It's already got about six people in it. And over really bad, loud music, I hear, yell, her, I hear her yell, I got a bag. James runs up and <laughs> he yells, I got 10 bucks and I got a, I got a Bible. <laughs> and they got in the car, did a burnout and took off. I walked past my bus stop and walked an hour and a half home. And just cried most of the way. And I couldn't tell you why at the time. But I know now that the reason why I was weeping so much is the way that Jesus saved me, the power that Jesus saved me. What God has done for me, God wants to do through me. And Jesus' teachings is creating the space, the window, the door, where God can do miracles if we just trust and take part in the love that God is. If we live out of our baptism, if we proclaim the Holy Trinity by just putting Jesus' commandments into action. I realized that day that it's not about must-dos and it's not about can't-dos, but God wants to do through you. So as I hand back over to Pastor Alan, the invitation is, do you know that freedom for yourself? Do you know that healing power for yourself? Have you experienced and encountered the power of the name of Jesus to set you free from what you're captive to? But have you also heard the call, follow me? God wants to do for you the freedom that Christ has won on the cross in his resurrection. And he wants to do through you what you can't imagine for yourself. This is what it is to have our stories rewritten by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for you now. Lord, you are holy and you are worthy of our praise. You are holy and you are worthy of our praise. We ask that anything that is not worthy of the goodness of your gospel, that it would fall away. But we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit in this moment, you would quicken our hearts. You would open us in such ways that we would not pass by this moment as you pass by us, Lord Jesus. Open us, we pray, to respond to your gospel where we let your love in, where we let you do to us and through us the love that has saved all things. Lord, in this moment, may we respond to your gospel, fall in love with Jesus for the first time or for the 100th time again in such ways that we say, my life is yours. So Holy Spirit, do your will. Do your will, Holy Spirit.
Let us respond to your gospel now, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.